All right, show of hands, who here has seen The Office? Almost everyone, this is amazing. All right, so one of the greatest opening scenes of TV of all time is by far the fire safety scene. So for those of you who haven't seen it, let me take you through what happens. So there's a character named Dwight. He is the self-proclaimed fire safety chief of the office, and he leads his fire safety talk the day before and realizes that no one really listened, no one really cared. So the next day he comes in and he takes matters into his own hands. So instead of having real fire safety instructors come in and teach about fire safety, he decides to do a real-life demonstration to see what people learned and to teach them how important this really is. So what he does is he takes torches to all the door handles, he puts keys into the locks, and then he just breaks them off with a hammer so there's no way to get through them and no way to unlock them. And then he sets this small trap can fire out in the hallway um, for smoke to come in and for people to freak out. Um, So after everyone sees the smoke coming in from the hallway door, it is an understatement to say that pure chaos ensued. So some of the things that we have going on. So we got everyone is running to every single door trying to figure out what is going on trying to unlock everything, trying to see, but everything's hot, so they can't open the doors. We have someone that's ramming a printer into a door, trying to knock it down. Uh, You've got uh, Michael Scott is throwing his chair at his office window, trying to break it open so he can yell at everyone. Uh, My favorite part is you've got Oscar, who he is trying to climb through the ducts, and then Angela comes by. She has a cat in her cabinet, which we don't know why she has a cat in there. She brings this cat to Oscar and says, Oscar, please save my cat. And he, she throws the cat up into the ceiling. And then it see the cat crash down two dials over onto the desktop. And then you have Oscar, like five minutes later in the scene, comes down like five tiles later thinking he's broken out and he's made it. And he's just in the office also with everyone else and hasn't done anything. And then you finish off the scene and you've got, um, you've got Stanley who is passed out on the floor, and Michael Scott is shoving a wallet into his mouth. I have no clue why he's doing that, but that's how the scene ends. And this is a classic story of Dwight, this person who is trying to take matters into his own hands, and then absolute chaos ensuing from that. So in the text today, um, in chapter 16, we've got Abram, Sarai, and Hagar doing the exact same thing. So remember last week we went through chapter 15. Uh, Josh preached about um, God's promise for Abram and Sarai. And then literally the next chapter we have the promise has not been kept yet. It's been a delayed promise. Um, and we have the reaction and the frustration and the discontentment that comes with Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. Um, so this is the first instance in the Bible of a delayed promise and the tension that that brings. So if you right now or have in the past have felt discontentment in a delayed promise or an unanswered prayer or just feel like God is not listening, you are not alone. This text speaks directly to that. Um, so we are going to go through this text. We're going to start off with verses 1 through 6, and we're going to look at all three different characters. We're going to look at Abram, Sarai, and Hagar, and we're going to look at their motivations and what is going on behind the scenes. So as I'm reading through um, this text, uh, again, just verses 1 through 6, pay attention to the characters, pay attention to what's going on, um, and kind of the feelings and reasons that may be behind them. So we'll begin uh, with Abram. So verses 1 through 6. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. 
So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan ten years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, Here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. And Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. Something that sticks out to me in this reading is that for Abram, there really isn't much dialogue. There really isn't much happening um, from him. And if you think about it, at this point, Abram's almost 90, 90 years old, and so he is exhausted, right? He's had this promise that he just learned about in, in chapter 15, but was years and years before. Hey, he heard this promise in the past, but um, he is exhausted on waiting for it, right? He is wiped out and exhausted and tired. And so he has his promises of, of this heir, but it hasn't come yet. And so he's just at this point where he's just kind of given up. Right, he's discontent with God, he's discontent in his marriage, he's discontent that he doesn't have a child yet. And so his reaction to this discontentment is passivity. Right? In this entire passage, you have Abram's name is there at least ten times, but we only see two actions. The first action is uh, agreeing to Sarai's idea uh, that was outside of God, God's will, and that passivity ends up uh, leading to hurt uh, to Sarai. And then second is letting Sarai do whatever she likes to Hagar, right? Both of them are passive actions that he's just kind of letting happen to him, um, and that is his reaction to his discontentment. So maybe this is you, right? Maybe you uh, feel this from Abram. You're like, I feel the exact same way. I've been waiting for something, and it's just not coming, and so I just feel like I kind of want to give up, right? Maybe for you, this is discontentment with, with your job, Right? Instead of being fully invested, you just kind of take day by day, and just kind of let it hit you. Whatever comes, comes. Um, but you, you don't really invest in your job. You're not trying to make your company better or your job better or anything like that. You're just kind of taking things as it comes. And oftentimes that results obviously in you know, lack of growth for your company, but also for your personal life. And then oftentimes it can lead to this feeling of, of like purposelessness, of, of like why am I here? Why am I at this job? And obviously that purposelessness can lead to other parts of your life from there. Or it could be discontentment in marriage. Or maybe you and your spouse have been getting into more fights uh, or little things are just really starting to make you mad. Um, but you're really tired of confronting, so you just kind of accept. You just kind of stop fighting for your marriage and kind of give up. Right? This leads to an apathy in your marriage. This leads to this feeling of just kind of hanging on by a thread in your marriage because you're not actually fighting um, for what God has given you. So I don't know your story, um, but all of us have been here at one time or another. I know for me personally, uh, it's me trying to share the gospel with my family. Um, so I uh, do not have any solid believers in my family or any Christians in my family. Um, and so I've been praying for them and trying to share with them for the past 15 years. Uh, nothing really has come from it, um, at least from my eyes, nothing has come from it. Um, and it is a prayer that is so difficult for me to pray now. Because you get to this point in discontentment, and I'm sure some of you have felt this before, where you just feel like nothing's really going to happen, and so you just kind of want to give up. Right, so for me, that passivity in that, those relationships with my family members leads to me not praying anymore, me going home and not really trying to share the gospel anymore. Um, I used to be so excited um, 
earlier in life of going home, trying to, like, praying, God, please give me opportunity to share with them, and um, being excited to share the gospel with them, thinking of questions to ask them before I get home so that I can, I know it's going to lead to spiritual conversation, Um, but recently that is not the case. Uh, Recently it's more a, well, I'm just going to go home, I'm going to have fun with my family, then I'm going to come back. So I know um, that for us uh, in different parts of our life, it could look like different things. Uh, But just like Abram in this situation, we have all been uh, to that point where we feel tired and exhausted and we just want to give up. All right, so maybe uh, you're like Abram and you feel that way, uh, but maybe you're more like Sarai. Um, so let's summarize uh, what's happened with her um, through this passage very quick. So starts off and um, Sarah is discontent uh, because she is barren, right? It's very plain right at the beginning. And then she takes matters into her own hands. She tells Abram, I have this amazing plan uh, that we can have a baby through Hagar in order to produce a child. And the plan succeeds, and then Sarai gets really mad. <laughs> uh, and she abuses Hagar to the point of Hagar running away. So, start back at the beginning. Um, It it starts off very clearly that Sarai cannot bear children. Uh, This was foreshadowed earlier in Genesis 11.30, that she was not uh, able to have a child yet, Uh, but now we're kind of seeing all that play out. And this is really just the beginning of the theme of barrenness that we actually see in Scripture. So, this begins here as the first time of barrenness. We see that with Sarai, and then next we see that with Rebecca. And then we see that with Rachel. Um, Three major characters in the line of Jesus that we see the barrenness theme come up again. And this really is just this repeated theme in Scripture that is showing that that God is very intentional with his timing for the line of Jesus and who was to come. So as Sarai is thinking about her barrenness, is getting frustrated with God, um, being discontent, she takes matters into her own hands by producing a child through her slave, Hagar. Now, this may sound really strange, but actually in this culture, that was super normal. This was the normal thing to do for a family if they're barren, to just have their slave, have their baby. And actually what happens in law at that time was that actually it wouldn't be the slave's baby anymore. It would be the family's. Um, so what Sarai was doing was, was not strange at all for that culture, but we know that that is, exact, that is opposite of what God had promised them. Right? God had promised that them two would have a child and that it would be theirs and that they would have heirs. And so Sarai comes in, and she, while Abram is dealing with discontentment with passivity and avoidance, uh, we see Sarai reacts to discontentment with control, right? She's trying to find her own way through the situation, no matter the cost. And what's crazy to me in this whole situation is she's constantly blaming, constantly blaming everyone else for what's going on, right? So she first begins in the passage, she first points to the Lord, uh, which is correct. Just as I was saying, there's this theme of barrenness that God has intentionality with every single couple that is going through this. So she points to the Lord, but then she goes and points to Abram and say, this is your fault. And then finally she takes it out on Hagar, blaming her for what is going on. But in all reality, as we all know, because we just read this passage, that all of this chaos began with her, Right? It was her plan that she came up with, and then it, it succeeds, and she gets really frustrated. Um, Sarai really, in this point, is really just this bull in a china shop. Right? She is blaming everyone, running around, trying to manipulate things to go her way, and is just creating chaos in her wake. Right? We see in this that it's her fear and it's her impatience that yield pain, not just for her, uh, not, uh, division, uh, not just for her, but in the entire household. 
right? This is just this perfect picture that sin does not happen in a vacuum, right? Our sin in our lives affects so many people around us, and oftentimes we don't even see it, right? There's, there's clear sin that we see in every single character because of Sarai's plan and her actions and her discontentment, right? We see Abram and Hagar sleeping together. We see Hagar boasting in their faces, and then we see the last one with Ishmael being born. Uh, we, it says in the end of that text that uh, Ishmael is going to be one who is against everyone, right? And, and this is crazy uh, to me. So we see if we follow Ishmael's descendants down the line, uh, we see that the Moabites and the Edomites were both people groups that are against God's people through the entire Old Testament, and they all came from that line of Ishmael. Then, even crazier, if you continue that line all the way down, um, you actually have Muslims today that follow the line of Muhammad all the way back to Ishmael. They call Ishmael uh, the spiritual father of Islam. Right, so even us today are dealing with the repercussions of Sarai's sin. Right, sin does not happen in a vacuum, even if we wish it did at times. Um, finally, we see Sarai go to Abram uh, because Hagar is belittling her and gets confirmation to do what she wants with Hagar. So she abuses her, uh, leading to Hagar fleeing. So maybe you don't feel like Abram as much um, in seasons of discontentment, but maybe you are more like Sarai. You're kind of the bull in a china shop trying to just make things happen and um, kind of wanting to be in control of everything that's happening uh, because you're just trying to do everything you can to, to produce an answer that you think is what you want. Um, so maybe in your relationships you feel like your friends or your significant other are, are passive and so you're always telling them how to fix themselves, how to fix their situation. Um, you're always kind of fixing things and what happens is people end up just trying to basically walking on eggshells around you because they don't, no one likes that, right? No one likes the nitpick against them and, and maybe that's what is feeling for you. Or maybe it's more subtle. Maybe you've had a major change in your life. Maybe it's been a big move or um, a job change. Maybe it's even a death in the family or maybe just you're not doing well, right? Maybe mental health has been really difficult for you, right? And, and in, this, in this time of these things happening, you begin to ask God, God, can you just make things normal again, right? Can you make things all right? Can I, can I begin to feel okay again? Can I feel settled? Um, can I feel like I'm not sad all the time? And you just feel like God really isn't answering. So you end up kind of forcing your way past the good, healthy emotions of grief and sadness and sorrow and lamenting, things that God has given us that are clear in Scripture. God has given us those emotions. And you kind of brush past those and you just kind of go and say, I'm a Christian, so I'm supposed to be happy all the time. That's just, you're right, we have joy in Christ and so I'm good, <laughs> right? I'm, I should feel fine if I'm a Christian. But that's not, that's not at all um, how God has designed things. And oftentimes when we do that, when, when we kind of build this up and we don't step into the um, hardness of, of life, uh, we just kind of bottle it up and we end up kind of bursting out. Um, and at some point, usually it's a lot of tears or lashing out at someone that you love um, or breaking down, right? Um, and this sounds weird because it's like, that feels like this another passive thing, but that really is control. That's really you stepping in saying, hey, I don't want to deal with these emotions, so I'm just going to barrel on through. I'm going to be fine. And that actually hurts you and hurts those around you. So again, all of us have been here before. Right, we've been like Abram who is dealing with discontentment uh, with passivity, uh, but we've also been like Sarai dealing with discontentment with control. 
So let's look at our last character, Hagar. See the final way that we often deal with discontentment. So it starts off by telling us that Abram and Sarai owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. We can assume that this was actually um, a gift from Genesis 12. You have a gift from Pharaoh given to Abram and Sarai. So we can assume that Sarai was, or Hagar was a part of that. And we also know that slavery in Egypt was much, much worse than her situation here with this family. So this was most likely a a move up for Hagar um, from her previous situation. And so Hagar comes into this situation as a slave um, for this family. And often uh, times it's also translated as maid. So that can be kind of in your your mind, that's kind of the image of of her role within this family. Um, And think about from her perspective, the wife comes in uh, to her and says, hey, I want you to sleep with uh, my husband. And she's like, well, that's weird, but all right. And so that happens, and uh, then she becomes pregnant. Um, And it sounds very strange, uh, but again, we knew that this was a normal custom at the time. Um, But yeah, so she becomes pregnant. And then it then says uh, this line I kind of want to clear some things up on. So it says, when Hagar was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. So two things I want to clear up just to kind of get our minds on the right um, track. So mistress in this text is not the same way that we'd use this today. So in my head, I was reading this text, and I was like, mistress, and I was like, oh, it's a woman who sleeps with a married man. That's like oftentimes how we use the word mistress, and I was like, why did Sarai become a mistress when Hagar slept with it? And it was very confusing. But in that time, mistress was just a woman in power. So it was very similar, uh, simply just a woman in power. And then the other thing I wanted to clear up is you may all know what the word contemptible means. I did not, so I had to look it up. So for those of you that don't know what it is, you can join me. Uh, it, is, it means despicable or being looked down upon. Right, this means that um, Hagar began to look down upon Sarai and saw her as despicable. So at this point, Hagar has become pregnant. And she is just shoving this in Sarai's face, right? She is flaunting and boasting that she has the capability to become pregnant, right? This thing that Sarai wanted and Abram wanted so badly, um, this has happened to Hagar. And so she comes in and she boasts, right? She's kind of like the little brother in the family, right? She, She boasts because she's doing something that all the others can't do. Uh, we saw this, uh, we know David uh, later on in the Bible, he was this way with his uh, brothers. We saw Joseph uh, was also this way with his family. Um, and finally, I was this way. I am the youngest of four. Uh, I have one older brother and uh, two older stepsisters. And so growing up, uh, my brother was the one, literally people would come to me and they would say, man, it must be hard to be Dylan's brother because he is literally good at everything, right? He is good looking. He broke records at our high school for athletics. He won Mr. Lake Norman contest, which is this thing in high school. He's funny, just all around an amazing guy. And even at his wedding during my speech, that's what I started off with was, I know everyone asked me, it must be really hard to be my brother's brother because he literally is so good at everything. Um, So growing up, we would always compete in different sports. Like our main things was like ping pong and basketball and pool. Those were our our big ones. Um, And I would never win. It was like every once in a while I would get a win. And then every once in a while, I mean like once every like 100 games, like it was brutal. And I 
know that it was act- that was the right ratio because we had this sheet that we would put up and it would say Dylan, Logan, and it would be Quids, and we would have mine would be like two, and then his we would have to like staple some papers down because so many tally marks. And I'm like I'm not joking that we actually had to do that because he won so much. So when I did win, obviously I would do what anyone else would do in this situation, and I would boast, and I would flaunt, I would tell his friends if they came over that I beat him earlier in the day, I would tell my parents, like, look, I beat Dylan, finally, all this kind of stuff like that, and they usually were like, it's about time, you know. Um, I found out pretty recently, uh, this is kind of sad, but I found out recently that Dylan, what he would do is he would let me win once in a while because he knew that if he kept demolishing his little brother in every sport that I would not play with him anymore. (laughs) So he just decided I'm just going to let him win every once in a while, get him to feel good again, and then we're going to play and I'm just going to keep demolishing him over and over again. But that's uh, besides the point. So uh, in the exact same way that I treated my brother when I won, Hagar was the exact same way. Right, her discontentment, it looks a little different from the other two. Her discontentment um, specifically comes out as pride, right? She has what everyone was desiring in the first place, and she's not satisfied by that. So she has to go and try to place herself above the place of Sarai to be content again, right? She was boasting in, her, in Sarai's face uh, because she wanted, that, that's what she actually desired, right? She didn't really desire to become pregnant. That was... Um, Abram and Sarai's desire. She wanted to be higher than Sarai in her position. And so it's a discontentment and role, right? And so we do this all the time, right? We do this in our jobs. We look to our bosses or other people in the work that are a little bit higher up than us. And we say, man, if I, if I was in that position, I would crush it. I would do so much better than they would, right? There's this, like, this comparison, this, this competition uh, between those around us. We often do this when it comes to just looking at other people's lives, this envy. Or we, we look at people's lives and would say, man, I wish I had that job. I wish I had that spouse. I wish I had those kids. I wish I had that money. I wish I had that house, whatever it is. We, we look to other people's lives and, and we get envious and we say, gosh, I wish I had those things. If I had those things, I would be happier. If I had those things, I would have more joy in my life. Right, it's this discontentment and role that we often feel. And uh, when we look at all three of these, when we look at um, Abram with passivity and Sarai with control and Hagar with pride, um, it's not like one is better than the other. Um, they all produce sin in us. Um, but we just see how much sin is entangled in this entire situation. Right, just like Dwight with fire safety coming in and creating um, absolute chaos by taking things into his own hands, we see that exact thing happening with these three. We have this discontentment. You're right. Chapter 15, the promise comes. Chapter 16, it hasn't happened yet. Three characters are discontent, and absolute chaos has ensued. So let's now look at these last uh, seven verses. Um, I'm going to read it again. We're going to see kind of how, how does God respond in the midst of chaos. Says the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, a spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. 
The angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are Elroy. For she said, In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me. That is why the well is called Beer Lahai Roy. It is between Gadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So we have three ways that God meets us in our discontentment. The first thing is he reminds us of our position. Or the very first thing that the Lord says to Hagar is, Hagar, slave of Sarai. Right, this moment, he's reminding Hagar of her position. And I feel like when we read this, we're like, gosh, that is very belittling of God to come, up, come in and label her like that right off the bat. Hagar, slave of Sarai. But that is exactly where God has placed her. Right, God has, has, not, has, has taken her out of Egypt and placed her within this family to play a specific role, and she's discontent with that. And so what he does is he comes in, he reminds her of her position, God uh, reminds her of who she is and her identity and who he has called her to be, right? And this is exactly what God does with us, right? He comes in, he reminds us of our identity. He uses his word in order to do that, right? James 1, uh, 22 through 25, I, I feel like there's just this perfect picture of um, God's intention for us in our identity. <clears throat> so I'm going to read this really quick. It's a passage you probably have heard. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom, perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. I love this passage because of the parallels that he draws in here, right? We have a hearer on one side and a doer on the other side, right? The hearer is one who looks at a mirror. What do you see when you look at a mirror? You see yourself. Then on this other side, we have a doer, and the doer, as it says, looks into the perfect law of freedom, right? There's another phrase for the Bible, for scripture, for God's word, right? So on this one side, we have a hearer who is looking into the mirror and seeing the reflection of who they are, the outward reflection. And then with looking at the doer, you have um, us looking into the perfect law of freedom. And what do we see? We see our identity. We see who God has called us. We see the inside of who we are and who God has called us to be. I love this passage because I think it is one that really helps us to see that God wants to constantly remind us of our position, He wants to constantly remind us of who he has created us to be, of our identity in him. We we always get so prideful and think that we can do everything that we want, um, do everything that we need, but God constantly comes back, reminds us again and again and again who he is and who we are. Right after that, he doesn't just call her um, back to position, but he or doesn't re- just remind her of her position, but he also calls her back to that position. Right, he says, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. That is not an easy thing to hear from Hagar, right? Guys, God, I think in this we see that God is not concerned about our ease in life. 
is concerned about our formation, right? He truly cares that you are looking more like Christ. There's this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. It's very, very humbling. <laughs> For this is God's will, your sanctification. As simple as it can get. It's not your happiness. It's not your joy. It's not your freedom. It's not your ease in life. It is your sanctification. And as we all know, sanctification is not easy. Not at all. But oftentimes, we care much, much more about our happiness and our ease in life that if there is any pain, we run away immediately, right? If there's anything that is disrupting things, we are trying to get out of there so that you're not attached to that pain anymore. You're not even flirting with the pain anymore. You're trying to get to this place where everything is just a little bit easier. Uh, The chaos is gone, right? Maybe um, in your job, you don't find fulfillment, so you actually just find yourself bouncing from job to job to job because jobs are hard and they're difficult, and you don't want to take the time to figure out what does it look like to actually be faithful here, right? Also, we see this in today's culture uh, when it comes to marriages, right? We see that everyone is very quick to jump uh, from marriages because it's difficult, right? It's, it's not easy. And this, this culture, our culture today has really lost the grit it takes to pursue a marriage and to uh, create a beautiful marriage that is going to last a lifetime, even though even people who aren't Christians would look at the people who are 80 and 90 years old who've been married for 60 years and say, that's exactly what I want. It's exactly what I want, but we also see them jumping for marriages whenever it gets difficult, Right, we, we constantly, all of us do this, right? We succumb to what culture is saying and we feel like all that matters is that we're happy. But again, that is not true. It's not what God wants for us. He wants our sanctification. He wants us to look more like Christ, right? So he, he reminds us of our position and then he helps us to continue to sanctify, to actually look more like him. And the second thing he does in our discontentment is he reminds us of his promises, Right after he reminds uh, Hagar of her position, he then gives Hagar a promise that he's going to greatly multiply her offspring, and there'll be too many to count. Right In our discontentment, God sees us. He helps us to remember identity, and then he points us to the promises that he has actually given because he is a faithful God that is worthy of following and is worthy of trusting. I heard this pastor say one time, um, in a sermon is about suffering, and he said that when we are in our suffering, we are to remember God's character more than think about our circumstances, right? We look to God's character, not our circumstances, right? Because in our circumstances, we are looking at the chaos, the storm around us. You know, when the disciples are in their boat, they're looking at the storm around them, and they're like, what is going on? But the moment that they turn and look at their eyes on Jesus, everything goes calm, right? We, we constantly look at our circumstances and we feel like, God, why? Why am I here? Why is this happening? Why is this chaos around me? But when we look to God, the one who is above all things, who is in control of all things, that is when we get peace and joy, right? We re, re, in uh, Romans 5, says we rejoice in suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance and character and hope, right? It's, I love uh, the word knowing in that passage, because that is where the joy comes from, right? It's not just saying, hey, rejoice in suffering, because it's awesome. <laughs> that is not at all what that text says. No, it says we rejoice in suffering, knowing that there is a, there is a sanctification that is happening within you in that process, right? It's the knowing that God wants us um, to see. Then we also see in First Peter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Right? It, is, it is the God that we believe in that when we see his character and we trust his character, then our circumstances calm and, and bring peace to us. 
right? A, a psalm that I go to constantly um, when I'm trying to cling to God's character, learn who God is even more, is Psalm 145. This entire psalm, I would encourage you to read it, to memorize it if you can. There is just so many nuggets of gold in there to cling to, but I'm just going to read verses 14 through 16. It says, The Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. It is God who is satisfying us. It's not the ease of our circumstances, of our situation. I'm sure Hagar did not feel that way. (laughs) But it is the God who we are following. He is the one who is satisfying to us. So the third thing. So we saw that God reminds us of our position. and He reminds us of his promises. And then in our discontentment, he hears our prayers. And he saves us from the wilderness. As Hagar is running away from where God has placed her, she is actually running to Egypt, right? The place that she just came from, well, not just, but a little while back came from. But this was a place that was uh, much worse for her. It was filled with much sin. And so she is literally running to a sinful life found in the wilderness, right? We see wilderness in scripture so many times, but she is found in the wilderness. And in that moment, it is God who initiates with her comes and says, hey, I see you. I see you in uh, the wilderness where you're at. I know where you're going. He speaks to her, and then he saves her from that wilderness, right? We see this constantly in the Bible, countless times in the Bible. Um, A clear example is the Israelites, right? The Israelites, um, I think when we think of wilderness in Bible, we think of the Israelites, right? They're in the wilderness for 40 years. Then God comes, he hears the cry, and he saves them. Um, A proof of this that we see is in Psalm 107. This is uh, probably one of my favorite psalms uh, because of the context. When you understand the context of the psalm, it just becomes 10 times more beautiful, right? The context is this is the very first psalm that is written once the Israelites have been saved from being in the wilderness, right? So after 40 years being in the wilderness, God saves them from it and brings them out of it, and this is what they write. I'm going to read uh, verses 4 through 9. It says, Some wandered in the desolate wilderness, finding no way to a city where they could live. They were hungry and thirsty. Their spirits failed with them, within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He rescued them from their distress. He led them by the right path to go to a city where they could live. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. For he has satisfied the thirsty and filled the hungry with good things. I love this passage because it has this repetition in this psalm that goes over and over again of um, they were in the wilderness, they cried out to the Lord, he saved them, give thanks. Right, we saw that in verses 6, 7, and 8 that I just read there, and then in 13, 14, and 15, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, he saved them in their distress, let them give thanks to the Lord. In 19, they cried out to the Lord, he saved them from their distress, let them give thanks. In 28, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, he brought them out of their distress, let them give thanks to the Lord. There's this constant repetition of what God does when we are in distress, when we are in wilderness, when we are discontent, is he hears our cry, he saves us from that wilderness, and then we return and we give thanks. So we see that in the Israelites, and the last one is that he initiates with us through Jesus, right? When we were in the wilderness, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God sent his son, Jesus, right? He initiates with us. 
not the other way around. <laughs> he initiates with us, right? He, he saw us in our sin. He heard our cry and he had this plan. He sent his son Jesus down to live a perfect life, to die and be raised again so that we could escape the wilderness by believing in him. Right, in our cry of discontentment, he is just saying to you guys, just wait. Just wait and see. I know you're in the wilderness. I know that you're crying out to me. I see what's going on, and I know you're frustrated. I know you're discontent with me. I see you. I see you where you're at. And in those moments, God comes, and he listens to our cry, and he saves us from that. If you're not a Christian tonight, this is what he is saying to you right now. Right? He, as, as you are in this world and you are here for some reason, you're trying to figure out, why am I here? What is going on? Trying to figure out this world that it's not satisfying. Right? There's, something, uh, there's something missing. There's something wrong. Um, there is discontentment within you in this world. And in that moment, God is saying to you, I've come to save you. Right, I, I have a way out for you, and it is my love through my son Jesus. Like I, I hear your cry, I see you, I know what you're going through, and I have provided a way for you to be fully satisfied in me. That's the only place you're going to find it. If you are a Christian, we still relate to Hagar, right? We are constantly, constantly running back to our old self, our old sin. Just as Hagar is running back to Egypt, going through wilderness to get there, we do the exact same thing. We run back uh, to our old sins, old habits, and in that space, God initiates with us. He reminds us of our identity in Christ. He reminds us of his promises, who he is, and he takes us out of the wilderness. Maybe not in the time that we want, right? I think we saw that with the barrenness of Sarai. She was discontent, and he did not answer her prayer. It's not like at the end of this passage, it's God's like, all right, Sarai, now you can be pregnant. We have finished chapter 16, and she's not pregnant yet. So yeah, there's still some discontentment there, of course. But God is, he knows what he's doing. He is in control, and we can trust in him. I love the end of um, this passage in Genesis 16. It says, um, it Hagar is looking to God and is called, names the Lord El Roy, God who sees. I remember um, back in college, my very first mission trip, I was in Greece, in Athens, working with refugees there. And uh, when, if you know anything about Greece, uh, its economy is not great. Um, and so when you walk around Athens, and, uh, it is, it's very disgusting very dirty, it's very grimy, it's not the most beautiful place to just walk around the streets because there's just a lot of filth happening. Um, but there's this hill in the middle of the city and there's this church on top. And you go up to that hill and you look across the entire city and you're like, wow, the city is beautiful. You see the whole thing, you see all of its planning, all of its intentionality of how it's been designed. You see the beauty of the whole city at once. Right now, we are the ones walking in the streets. We've got grime and dirt and sin and suffering all around us as we're walking around. And, and we go and we see a corner and we're like, all right, I'm going to turn around the corner and I'm going to see something beautiful. It's going to be cleaner. It's going to be a little bit nicer. And we turn the corner and nothing is different, right? There's more sin. There's more grime. There's more dirt. So we get exhausted. But God, he's the one that is up on the hill 
looking across the city and saying, that is beautiful. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know that the, the, the streets are disgusting and there's so much dirt and sin and suffering that is within that, but I have a plan and I know what I'm doing. Right, we get to look forward to a day that God creates a new city. That we get to walk with him and it is going to be beautiful. Even walking in the streets, it's going to be beautiful. Right, all, there's going to be no dirt, there's going to be no grime. It is going to be a beautiful city that is clean and pure. And the best part about all of it is that God is going to be in the midst of the city with us. Right? I love the end of this, this passage. Like I said earlier, the interaction ends with Hagar declaring God as Elroy, the God who sees. So church, as you walk away today, as you, as you think about the discontentment in your life, because I know we all have it. <laughs> I know we all, it's not like there's any of us in here probably that are like, yep, I'm satisfied with everything. I don't think any of us would ever say that. There's discontentment in every single one of us. And so, in your discontentment, I want us to be able to walk out of here and recognize the God that we serve is Elroy. He's the God who sees us in our discontentment. He sees us in our frustrations and the ways that we just are very fed up. All right, so whether you're more like Abram or Sarai or Hagar in your discontentment and you see the sin that's coming from you, regardless of all of that, God sees you. He reminds us of our identity in him. He reminds us of his promises and his word that are beautiful, beautiful. Everything you need is in, in the word everything you need. And he hears our cry, and he saves us. So no matter where you're at, God sees you. He sees all that you're going through, and you're not alone. Let's pray.